Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. Ashley and I uh, had the opportunity to be in South Carolina last week. We were visiting with um, our district conference that met there, and then we also got to attend church at Golden Grove, where we uh, moved from earlier uh, last year before uh, we came here to this area, and it was a joy to be with those folks and worship with them, and now I'm excited to be back uh, with you and worship with you. we got a lot going on these days. There's a lot happening, a lot to uh, cause us to pay attention, all right? So that's just my subtle hint to you to pay attention, okay? There's a lot, and I don't want, I don't want you to miss it. We've outlined seven goals that we have from here until uh, April of uh, 2019, and those are also listed in your bulletins. Go ahead and grab those out. Uh, take a look at that first page. You see our mission is there. Um, we're not changing that. Uh, there's uh, a mission that's already well established here at Brown's Chapel, so we don't want to reinvent the wheel with that. But we do want to put some um, specific goals to each of these things that hopefully over the course of the next 10 months or so will get us moving along together and get some exciting things stirring among us as a group. So you see those listed there, and we've also got these beautiful, whoever did the handwritten artwork that's hanging up here in the sanctuary, just top notch, whoever that is. And we've got them hanging here in front of us. So we're praying and asking the Lord to give us two families, two new families for the church. That's going to take a lot of your effort in that. That means we as a body need to be inviting others to come and join us in what the Lord is calling us to do. We're seeking to build an intergenerational worship service, something that is available to adults and children. It's not going to happen overnight, but there's been meetings and plans and things being drawn up that will hopefully lead us in that way, and I look forward to sharing more about that with you in the days to come. We're asking the Lord for three baptisms, and I've already had someone come to me and talk with me about baptism. So I believe we'll already have one. We're looking for two more. If it's you, uh, get ready. We're praying that the Lord gives us a heart of familial love for one another, that we know one another. I'm still trying to learn your names, uh, trying to get everybody's faces connected to a name. And the joy of that so far is that most of you are named either Cindy or Mike. I love that. <laughs> so I think what I'm going to do is just all the ladies, I'm going to call you Cindy, and all the men, I'm going to call you Mike. And uh, I'll, I'll be at least about 50% accurate there in whatever I do. So that's good. We're praying that the Lord gives us five new members in the church. And in that goal, I've also had someone come to me and say, that's something that I want to do. And that just makes me excited. I believe there are at least four more of you who want to jump in and get involved with that. Um, we were planning to do membership service or, or membership classes in January of next year, but if we get a group of people who are ready to go and ready to do it now, why wait? Let's get started on that. We're praying that the Lord gives us five to six clear relationship-based mission partners, people who are serving across the globe and in our community that we get to know and love and work corporately with, and we're praying for the elimination of a small loan. We have two loans here at Brown's Chapel. Uh, they total up to about three-quarters of a million dollars, which is quite a bit, but they are in two notes. And we want to try to, over the next 10 months, eliminate that smaller loan, which would free up $672 a month that could be used to roll into the bigger loan and provide extra ministry money. A lot of our ministry funds for doing practical ministry are rolled up in a bunch of loans right now, and that's that's difficult. So we got to work hard together to make that happen. Now, 
I presented this all to you two weeks ago, and I was trying to get you excited. I'm kind of an excited person when it comes to these things, and somebody came to me after church and they said, you know, our people, they don't really get that excited. I mean, they're excited, but they don't show that they're excited. They're not going to be doing cartwheels down the aisle. And that just made me think, I need one more goal that will be uh, the eighth goal, and that is, I've got it right here, the eighth goal that I'm going to put up for us, oh, come on, is that we have somebody do a cartwheel down the aisle of the church between now and April 30th, 2018. So if that's you, the Lord's stirring your heart, and I know what's going to happen one day. Somebody's going to do a cartwheel. It could be, you could do it over here, you could do it right down this aisle, wherever it is. When you're ready, I'm ready for it, and we're going to see that happen between now and April. Well, uh, we've been doing a series called No Small Thing, where I started off telling you that in God's hand, there is nothing small. There's nothing small. God takes small things, and he amplifies them and uses them for incredible things. God's just in the business of doing that over and over again in Scripture. We see that happening. But here's the thing. God calls us to take what we have and put it in, our, in his hands. If you haven't figured it out yet, the actual big idea that we're talking about when we say no small thing is that God is calling each and every one of us to do something for him. God has given us a calling and he wants us to partner with him to see something happen. We've been talking about some excuses that we uh, you know, come up with about why we shouldn't follow the Lord's calling, that we're not good enough. And we're skillful at making excuses. We're excellent excuse makers as people, aren't we? We say, I don't know how to do it. I didn't understand what you were asking. I couldn't find the right tools. I threw my back out while I was gardening. I have a doctor's appointment next week. There's been a death in the family. The hazmat crew is at my house and they won't let me leave. I have a relative flying from Hawaii and I need to pick them up on the, in the airport. When I got up this morning, I accidentally took two X-Lac instead of my Prozac. and I'm just all messed up and I can't get it together, God, to work for you. In the Christian world, we can find all sorts of excuses about why we shouldn't obey God's voice or his calling. In the Christian world, we might say, well, it's the preacher's job to do that. It's the preacher's job to make this happen. It's not my gifting. I've already served. It's time to let somebody else do it. That oftentimes comes out of a good heart, but sometimes it's an excuse. It's not my gift. I'm too busy or too tired or too old or too young. And we saw the story of Moses, where Moses offered to the Lord every excuse he could come up with under the sun about why he shouldn't be the one that God calls. But eventually, that relentless God got him, and he got involved in what God was wanting to do, and he is looked back on as one of the greatest leader figures, not just in Scripture, but in human history. Moses has looked at it the way that he led the people. He was wise. He had wise people around him. God did some great stuff through him. And what an incredible story. Then we talked about Jonah. And you remember Jonah's story. Jonah's excuse wasn't that he didn't feel like he could do it or that it wasn't his gift to do it. Jonah just didn't like God's plan. Jonah didn't think that what God was doing was what should actually happen. Jonah was a little bit racist. 
root a little bit. Jonah was racist towards the people of Nineveh. They were not Jewish people. They were Gentile people. They were, they were people who were far from God. And he wanted to see God's justice thrown down. And God instead offered love and forgiveness. And he threw a pity party and the whole fish thing and the fine thing we talked about all of that. Well, the big excuse is Jonah gave up on his excuses. He followed the Lord. God used him. Jonah, his heart didn't align with God's heart. And there was no joy for Jonah in the process. And so my goal for you in the story of Jonah was to say, what is God calling you to do? And can you align your heart with that? And so if you remember a couple weeks ago, we broke up around the sanctuary and we gathered around some of these things that you feel passionate about. Maybe we should do it again at the end of church today. Uh, but we gathered around some of the things that you felt were super important and you prayed over those things. And it was beautiful to see your groups gathered throughout the church and praying together as you aligned your hearts with what God was calling to you or calling you to do over the next season. Today we're going to look at another person that God called. His name is Jeremiah. I had a dog named Jeremiah when I was a boy. We named him after the weeping prophet. I don't know why mom and dad let me and my brothers decide what name he was going to have. And we were like, Jeremiah sounds great. And so he went by Gerald for short. Uh, but Jeremiah was also a bullfrog. He's also a dog. and He's also a prophet in uh, the Bible. And if you've got, if you look in your pews, if you don't have a Bible with you, um, grab one of those. There's blue Bibles and red Bibles. And the red Bible... This story that we're going to read today is on page 533. In the Blue Bible, it's on page 746. We're going to be looking at Jeremiah chapter 1, right when, uh, right when God calls Jeremiah. One of the interesting things about Jeremiah is that we have more background information on him than perhaps any other prophet in Scripture. There's a lot to know about Jeremiah and where he comes from and the day in which God called him and the situations around that. But there's still a lot to learn there as well. So let's turn there. Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. We're going to read together and it's up on the screen. So if, you, if, if this is too small print for you, take a look up there on the screen. Let's read all together. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests of, good job, in the territory of Benjamin, the word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and throughout the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people in Jerusalem went into exile. Good job. You did good. Um, oh, uh, yeah, we're going to get there in a minute. All right, we're going to pause here for just a moment. So Jeremiah, we get the calling here. We got a lot of weird names that you tried to stumble through, and those probably distracted us a little bit. But here we go. Jeremiah is the son of a guy named Hilkiah. Hilkiah was a priest in God's temple during the reign of the boy king Josiah. Okay, very interesting guy because Hilkiah is talked about in Scripture. If you take wherever your Bible is when we're at Jeremiah chapter one, and you just about cut it in half like that. You'll get to First and Second Kings, and it's in Second Kings where we read the story of uh, Jeremiah's dad. He's from a pretty important family. His dad Hilkiah is mentioned there in Second Kings as a priest who, during the reign of King Josiah, was charged with going and finding funds to renovate the temple. And in the process of that, Jeremiah's dad Hilkiah found 
a scroll that had been lost. It's believed to be the scroll of Deuteronomy. It was the law of God, and he was so excited. He comes out of the temple with the scroll, and he tells one of his buddies, he's like, I found this, this I found the word of God. Here it is. We, we have it. And uh, they read it together, and they were so excited that they went to Josiah, the, the boy king, and they were like, we found this scroll, and he asked for it to be read to him, and so they read it to the king, and then Josiah was so worked up by that that he went out and called all the people together, and we found the word of the Lord, and they began to read it, and it started this revival process among the people during Josiah's reign. And we know that Jeremiah's ministry begins towards the end of all of Josiah's reign and continues as people are being taken as captive into exile. It's called the weeping prophet. He's got a lot of lamenting because while there was this revival, people's hearts hardened and turned away, and now they're in exile, and he's upset by all of that. But we have at this point no idea what Jeremiah's plans were for his life. He's still a young guy when God calls him, still living with his mom and dad. But the voice of God comes into the picture, and we read about it in verse 4. So now we're going to read again, picking up right here at verse 4, and fill God's house with God's word. Here we go. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So here's this thing. Jeremiah's got this calling that he didn't even know about, that God shows up and says, Hey, Jeremiah, I've got something for you to do. And Jeremiah didn't have this in his five-year plan, 10 or even 50-year plan, but God seems to have something in mind. And there's three things that God tells Jeremiah in this statement that I think are important for us to hear today. If you've got your notes, they're in your bulletin. You've already had your bulletins out. So turn to those notes, write it down. Statistics say you're about 80% more likely to remember something from today if you take the time to put pen to paper, okay? So write something down here. Here we go. First one. I knew you and I formed you. This is what, what God says to Jeremiah. Jeremiah... I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. What a comfort it is to know that God's loving eye was on Jeremiah before Jeremiah ever knew about God. And the same is true for each of us. Before you knew God, God knew you. Before you knew God, God knew you. He formed you, he created you, he knew you. And this sounds to me so much like a passage out of the Psalms, Psalm 139. I love it. Would you do me a favor for this portion? I don't have it on the screen. This isn't too weird for you. You can trust me here. I want you to just relax and listen to this psalm that I'm going to read for you today. I encourage you to close your eyes and just hear what God says to us. This is the psalmist David talking to the Lord. Oh God, you created me in the deepest parts of my being. You put me together inside my mother's body. How you made me is amazing and wonderful, and I praise you for that. What you have done is wonderful. I know that very well. None of my bones were hidden from you when you made me inside my mother's body. That place was as dark as the deepest parts of the earth. When you were putting me together there, your eyes saw my body even before it was formed. You planned how many days I would live. You wrote down the number of them in your book before I had ever lived through even one of them. Isn't that beautiful to know that God 
us before we can even recall our earliest memory. God was stitching us together, sketching out a plan and a purpose for every one of us. My question in all of this to you today is, do you believe that? Do you believe that God knew you and laid out something for you before you knew anything about Him? Do you believe that He knew us before our parents knew us? Do you believe that it's just coincidence or do you believe that it is a true thing that God puts all things together? Do you believe that? Because if you do, then you've got to believe that God really has a plan or a design for you. If it's all just happenstance or circumstance, then maybe it's not. But if you believe that God lays out things and designs us and formed us and laid out our days, if you believe that God knows us before we are known and He forms us and puts us together, then you've got to believe there is a reason that He's doing that. He's doing it for a purpose. He forms us for a purpose. That's why every person, all of humanity, is important. All of humanity is special. All of humanity, God calls and sanctifies and sets apart different from the rest of creation. I used to tell my congregation at Golden Grove to remember how important human life is. We had a big uh, road, a little busier than the road that runs out here. is Highway 178 out there. And these, there's like these, I don't know if it was like logging trucks were coming down the road. And there was like a quarry down there. So these huge trucks just Vroom, barreling down the road. And sometimes you'd be in church and you'd hear outside the church vroom, as they go by. And I used to remind them, I said, okay, I want you to pretend, just visualize with me for a moment that, uh, you know, you walk out the church doors today and out in the middle of the road, you see a little baby sitting there next to the most adorable puppy you've ever seen in your life. And here's the fact. Not all babies are beautiful. And I want you to pretend, I mean, they're beautiful to their moms and dads, right? But you all know what I mean, right? I mean, let's be honest. Let's just, let's just speak, speak freely here. Some babies, you know, they come out with that little bit misshapen head and they got all these things going on. They look like an old man or whatever it is. But you see the most adorable puppy you've ever seen in your life and you see a baby who, eh, you know, will grow into themselves one day. And, down the road, you see one of those huge logging trucks barreling down the road. You have the chance to run out into the middle of the road and scoop one up and save it. The adorable puppy or the baby. Which one are you going to save? The baby, right? Because humanity is something different than other things. We believe it's intrinsically built into us. I think it doesn't matter any culture. I believe it's hardwired into us that we are somehow important or different from the other things that God has created. And so I encouraged them and I said, I want there to be a puppy pancake out on that road at the end of church. That baby's saved and there better be this flat puppy out there. <laughs> Some of you are like, no, I love puppies. Don't touch. I'll, I'll stop the illustration here. We'll move on, okay? Humanity's different. God calls us. He made us special. Every one of us is set apart. In fact, that brings us to point two. God says in his word to Jeremiah, I consecrated you. I set you apart. This is that setting apart is the language of sanctification in a way. It's the language of consecration. It's the language that we use in church setting for things that are special for use for the Lord. For example, a couple of weeks ago, 
we used this olive oil and we anointed heads as we prayed with this oil. Now, this oil came from Aldi. It, it came in an olive oil container and its original intention was for you to cook with it. But this olive oil was set apart. It was pulled away from the rest of the olive oil and put into this jar. And we're not going to cook with this oil. That's no longer its purpose. Now its purpose is for anointing the head as we pray together. It's consecrated and set apart in that way. And God is saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, I pulled you apart. I'm setting you apart. I'm consecrating you. This also, yeah, all right. I'm going to move on here. I've, it's, I was too excited about the puppies. I'm still thinking about that, but I don't want to distract you anymore. God has a purpose for you, and he wants to pull you out of the crowd. God calls everybody in the crowd of humanity, and he says, I want to set you apart for a purpose. I want to bring you out from the rest for a purpose. Can you listen to God's voice? Sometimes being set apart by God means big changes in your life. It means you're no longer a part of the groups you used to be a part of. I have a dear friend who was caught up in addiction for a long period in his life. And he came to the Lord and his life radically transformed. And all his friendships were wiped out. He, had, he, was, he, he couldn't be around the people he used to be around. He had to establish, and he was yearning for new friendships, new relationships within the body of Christ because everything changed for him. When he followed the call of God in his life, everything changed. And it may mean for us that something changes. God has called us and he wants to use us and that means that there's going to be changes in life and we're going to be set apart and we're going to be different. The great hymn writer, Fanny Crosby, wrote the song, I am thine, O Lord. I have heard thy voice. She wrote, Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope and my will be lost in thine. Now wouldn't that be wonderful? For our will, our desire to be so consumed by God's will and God's desire that what we want is what He wants. Doesn't that sound like the aligning of a heart to God's heart. The third thing that God says to Jeremiah is, I appointed you. And this is what God is calling him to do, appointing him to do. And God appoints us to things. He had an appointment for Jeremiah, and you have one too. No Christian exists merely to make an honest living, enjoy retirement, and die. Every one of us is called to an appointment. You are here on purpose. You are not self-made. You are not your own. You are God's. You did not first choose Him. He first chose you. You're not an accident. You're a design. And God made you with a purpose. I have another pastor friend who pastors a church plant in Somerville. It's near Charleston, South Carolina. And the motto for the church is called Providence Church. And then in like this big red circle, there's three words. It says, here on purpose. We're here on purpose. We have a purpose. We have an appointment. There's something that we're called to do. Now, Jeremiah's response to all of this. Jeremiah's response to all of this, guess what? It's an excuse. 
but it seems quite legitimate. Look at what he says. Read it with me. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am too young. Now, I believe that this is a genuine response out of Jeremiah's heart. I don't think that it's that he doesn't like God's plan. I don't think it's that he doesn't feel, or, you know, that he's just coming up with excuse after excuse like Moses did. I believe this is a genuine response in Jeremiah's heart. I don't think he's just making up excuses like Moses or anybody's excuses. I'm too young. Do we ever have a legitimate excuse? Yeah. Sometimes there's things in our life that seem legitimate. We're saying, God, why would you call me to do this? I just can't understand it. It, You know, my heart wants what you want, but I just, I just can't see it. God asked Jeremiah to do something that Jeremiah just doesn't think he can do. And so naturally he refuses. I can't do this. You've got the wrong guy. I'm not anywhere near old enough. I'm still dependent on my mom and dad. I still live at home. Maybe he thought, you know, my dad, he's a pretty famous guy. He did a lot of stuff. Like the whole nation came to know the Lord because my dad found the, the scriptures down there. And, you know, all this stuff happened and there's no way that I could ever live up to that. He's asked to do something tough and we're asked to do something that we know we can't do. It seems foolish to accept the assignment. He's asked to be a prophet and Jeremiah pled in inadequacy. Who wouldn't do that? Be a prophet lets people know who God is, what God is like, and a prophet wakes us up from our sleepy complacency so that we see the great and awesome things that God is doing. A prophet pushes us onto the stage of life to play our part in God's great drama, whether or not we are ready. A prophet angers us by rejecting excuses and ripping off disguises. A prophet drags our heartless attitudes and selfish motives out into the open where everybody sees them for what they are. A prophet makes everything and everyone seem significant and important because God made something for them. A prophet makes it difficult to continue with a sloppy or selfish life. A prophet will not rest until we all fully embrace the fullness of life that God is offering to us. Who wants a job like that? People don't normally like prophets. People don't like prophets. Who wants that job? Certainly not Jeremiah, and probably not you, and most certainly not I. And Jeremiah says, I just can't do it. I don't know anything. I'm uneducated. I'm, I'm just a boy. We're all practiced in pleading our inadequacy in order to avoid living at the best that God calls us to live. And our excuses keep us from living a full life that we've been offered. Excuses keep us from running with the horses and make us content to plod and drudge along through life. And again, I don't believe this comes from the heart of excuses like Moses had. He's legitimately saying to God, you've got the wrong guy and the wrong idea about me. I'm too inexperienced, I'm too young, I'm uneducated, I don't have the prophet training. Reminds me of the opening chapters of The Lord of the Rings. Just geeked out for a minute. Uh, anybody else? Lord of the Rings? Uh, okay, three or four. Oh, good. We'll spend the whole day together. We can watch the extended editions. It'll be great. <laughs> all right. Well, if you don't know the story of the Lord of the Rings, it all begins. A guy named J.R.R. Tolkien wrote it. He wrote this book first called The Hobbit. And it was about this dude named Bilbo Baggins. He's this little uh, short guy with hairy feet. He likes to eat a lot. 
And he goes out on this big adventure, and in the course of it, he finds this ring. And the story is about this dragon and gold and all of that, and then that story kind of ends. But he still has this ring at the end of the story. Well, the Lord of the Rings, you find out that the ring is more important than it initially appears. See, when you put the ring on, it would make Bilbo invisible where people couldn't see him. And he passed on, he's, he's just kind of aging out in life, and he passes on this ring as an heirloom to his nephew, Frodo. Well, Frodo finds out that this ring is like created by this big bad guy, and he's got to get rid of it. It's got to be destroyed. And this wizard named Gandalf comes. <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're like, what in the world, and why does this matter? This wizard with the big white beard comes, and he talks to Frodo, and he says to him, you've got to go do this. It's, it's in your hands. I can't take it. Nobody else can. You have been chosen. You have been chosen to take this ring and to destroy it, to essentially knock out evil in the world. We've got to get rid of this thing, and you've got to do it. But Frodo is too afraid. He's this little guy with hairy feet, just like his uncle. What can this little guy do? In the opening chapters, he says, I am not made for perilous quests. I wish I'd never even seen this ring. Why did it come to me? Why was I chosen? The wizard answers him and he says, Frodo, such questions cannot be answered. You may be sure that it was not for any merit that others do not possess, not for power or wisdom at any rate, but you have been chosen and you must therefore use such strength and heart and wit as you have. Frodo goes on the journey. The ring ends up, spoiler, the ring ends up getting destroyed in the end of all of it. But this is like the calling. It's like, I don't, I, I, like, I don't have the power. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the wits about me to do this thing. Why me? The wizard's answer is beautiful. Such questions cannot be answered. Why, God, would you choose me to do this thing for you? Why would you call me to this task? Why? Such questions cannot be answered. Such questions cannot be answered. None of the great figures of faith, Abraham, Sarah, Jacob, Rebecca, Hannah, Samuel, King Solomon, Saul, David, fishermen who would be called to be disciples, right down to Mary, none of them possessed anything special, but God called them and consecrates them and appoints them. And there are times when we have legitimate excuses. You can't possibly mean me. But look at what God says to Jeremiah. Verse 7. Read it with me. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am too young. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. What's God's answer every time when we say, why me? God's answer is, I don't send you alone, Jeremiah. You don't go alone on this journey. I go with you. I've got you. Look, I've put my words into your mouth. I'll never ask you to do something then not go with you. It's not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So what's your legitimate excuse? You may not be like Moses where you're just you know, trying to get out of it. You may kind of want to do what God's calling you to do, but you're a little bit scared because you think, well, it certainly can't be me. 
What's your excuse? Let's try something this morning. If you're under 20 years old, would you stand up? <laughs> hey. Hello, friend. <laughs> Welcome. You're under 20. And you might say, when God calls you, you might say, I'm too young. I'm too inexperienced. I don't know what I'm doing. Do not waste these years. Do not waste these years because when God calls you, He wants to use you. He wants to let you be the example. God, Jesus Christ Himself. Like there's a lot to learn from young people, Jesus said. We need to see the models of faith. You set an example. Look around the room, those of you who are standing up. I'm sorry, not you who are sitting down. You keep your eyes in front of you. If you're standing up, look around the room. Look behind you and beside you. You set an example for the rest of us. I'm standing, but I'm out of my under 20. All right, you can be seated. If you're 20 to 40 years old, stand up. Hi, friend. Here we are. We are the 20 to 40 year olds. And we might say, legitimately, God, I've got my life to live. I'm just trying to get started here. I'm trying to get things going. There's a lot to consider as I've now come out of childhood and into this adult life. Let us not waste these years, guys. Why go live this crazy life like a crazy person? thinking that we can get it all later and squander away what we have right now. God has called us to our work, to our families, to our spouses, to our church. Let's do it and do it well. Amen? You can be seated. Alright. You're 40 to 70. That's a big gap there. <laughs> I'm, I'm not too far off from joining you here, folks. I'll be with you soon. Hello, 40 to 70 year olds. You might say, I'm starting to get too old for something like this. <laughs> I'm starting to feel too old for something like this. But God may be calling you to something that would be a big change in your life. Don't settle. I want to let you know. There are men and women in this age group that I have seen give up their established lives, walk away from workplaces, and go serve the Lord in foreign places, giving their lives and the rest of their family and the rest of these years that they have to service there. It's incredible. I think about this couple named Larry and Marty Grimes. The example that they set to do that is wonderful. God has a purpose for you. You are not at the end. You're not even close to the end, especially if you're around 40. I'm sorry. This could get awkward. Please don't hate me for this, okay? <laughs> God's got so much in store for you. There's so much to look forward to as you continue to invest in your family, in your kids, in your grandkids. As all of this is happening, there are huge things that God may be calling you for and to do. You can be seated. All right. If you're over 70, I have a concession for you. If you just need to raise your hand, that's fine. If you can stand, if you can stand, stand up if you're over 70 and you can stand. You may say, I've now done my time. I'm ready to be done. This is retirement and I'd like to just kind of walk off into the sunset. But 
God is not done with you. God is not done with you. God is calling every one of us to engage in what He has for us. And there may be something on the horizon that God is beginning to reveal to you that you need to say, yes, I can and will follow that. It will be a big change. It will be a big investment out of my life. And even though I've done my time and have served faithfully, God may have more. He's calling you. You can be seated. I don't know if you caught it or not, but in our call to worship today, the psalmist said something that encompasses everything we just said. Let's look at it together. Read it with me. Oh God, you have taught me from my earliest childhood, and I constantly tell others about the wonderful things you do. Wait right here. You taught me from childhood. I'm telling others. Like this is the young person saying, God, I, you know, I've known about you and I, I want to serve you and you've done wonderful things and like I want to use this time that I have in my life to tell others about how wonderful you are and the great things that you do. But now look as the psalmist writes the next verse. Now that I am old and gray, do not abandon me, O God. Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. Look at that. The calling is the same. I'm young. I want to tell everybody about what God is up to and what God is doing. Woohoo! And then the psalmist says, I'm old and I want to tell everybody about how good God is and everything that he's done. Woohoo! Right? Right? It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. God is calling us to something. Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Let's pray together. God, we may have a legitimate excuse. And oftentimes in the church world, oftentimes it can relate to age. Just like Jeremiah. There's some of us who would say, I'm too young to do this thing. I, I can't, you know, I'm not educated enough. I'm not trained enough. I, I don't know all the things. I don't know what to do. God, I pray that you take us past that excuse and let the young people jump headfirst into what you're calling them to do. Thank you for the way that you set them as leaders and examples and, 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 and goals for us as older people to look at and see. And God, we may be on the opposite end of the spectrum. And our time may be to say, I've done my time. It's time for me to move along. But that's not what the psalmist said. The psalmist said, I want more people to know. Give me just one more, God. Give me another person to tell about your great deeds. Let me invest in the next generation. Let me come alongside them and walk with them and, and develop them into the calling that you've given them. Let me, my calling be to see them succeed in their calling. God, that hits on that intergenerational worship concept. I pray that we as a body would listen to what you're stirring up in our hearts. God, I pray that we would rise up and follow that calling that you have given to us. God, move on us. Inspire us. Give us new dreams. Give us things to share with others. God, will trust you for it. Now as we sing together, align our hearts with what you're wanting to do in us and through us. And it's in Christ's wonderful name that we pray. Amen. Let's sing together.
thought today, our benediction as we leave. Consecrate me now to thy service, Lord, by the power of grace divine. Let my soul look up with a steadfast hope, and my will be lost in thine.